For years, research regarding menstruation and its relation to female student-athletes has been neglected. Are you curious to know if you can prevent injury by taking a closer look at your cycle? Did you know that your birth control method may be hurting your performance? Or what if just by customizing your training to match your cycle, you could revolutionize your output? Our guest today shares how female student-athletes can use their cycles to their advantage, while debunking period myths one research study at a time. Thank you for tuning in to Benched. This is your host, Jules Mikia, and I'm so excited to announce our guest for today. Samantha Moore is joining us from NC State. Thank you so much, Sam, for being here with us. Yeah, yeah, I'm stoked to be here. Anytime that um, I'm given a platform to speak and hopefully you know, reach some, some bigger populations of female athletes, it's a huge gift, so it's really humbling. I was an athlete. I was a two-sport athlete. I played collegiate volleyball and then was a multi-event specialist for the track team. And in that process, I had one athlete who I think she was a junior that year. And her sophomore year, she had been a finalist in the state for the 15 and the 3K. And then she came back her junior year after like lifting really well. She played basketball and cross and had moderate successful seasons. Um, but her track season of her junior year, she just came in and was a totally different athlete, but in for, for the worse. And so we, I couldn't figure it out. And I was, I was wondering if it was my training that I was giving her, or the cues I was giving her, or the lifting that she was doing. And I couldn't really piece it together. And she was an incredibly hard worker, uh, but she would just come in some days and just like not have it. And it, it wasn't for lack of trying or lack of effort. I mean, I could see it in front of me that she just didn't have it. And so I started kind of looking into it and I found a podcast by Dr. Stacy Sims. And that was the first time that I had heard of menstrual cycles effect on performance and training and, and anything beyond how, how we learn the cycle in our anatomy and phys courses. And so some of the, the changes that I started to make with this one athlete, I saw a lot of benefits. Um, and so we would kind of, you know, allow her to make a lot more dictation over her own training and so how she felt that day we would program different things so if she felt pretty exhausted we might do you know like some aerobic work some bounding work and then send her home if she felt really strong we might do some sprint work um, or some technique development and so we started giving her some more potential for room um, for training and I started offering that to a few different female athletes and so with that I decided to pursue my PhD and um, the tricky thing with the PhD is that a lot of people think that my PhD is in female physiology and training considerations but it's not it's in health and human performance of exercise science um, I just choose to target all of my assignments to female phys topics and my dissertation to female phys. And so, um, you know, I've yet to come across a, a course in a traditional, you know, educational program of, of post-secondary learning, so a collegiate program that deals with how female physiology is affected in training and how the menstrual cycle affects training and performance. And so everything that I've, you know, created, I've had to kind of learn on my own. That's the difficulty is that we're really not learning about this in our traditional college formats of exercise science. And it's really important. And so now um, it's a hybrid role. So I'm an assistant strength and conditioning coach and an applied sports scientist. And I work with women's soccer and women's volleyball. And I create their training programs um, based on their menstrual cycle and different birth controls and things like that. Um, working with the athletic trainers and the dietitians that I get to, we've been able to put in so many different 
applications for these athletes and, and problem solve these these issues of performance that have to do with female sex hormones that we wouldn't get to in other environments and so it's been really incredible yeah that's so awesome I'm like so excited to like dive into this topic like how has this never been discussed I have never ever had this conversation I wanted to get your thoughts and like your experience when you first like came up with this idea and you approached people about it what was the conversation were they like no or were they like oh that's interesting like how did it kind of go it's interesting because when I I think it had to do a lot with my job title Right. So when I was an intern and I would approach people about these ideas, I would get not so much pushback, but more so just like that's just not feasible. Like, um, you know, I would get kind of answers of like, well, there are just some questions that you can't ask. And, and that's one of them. You just can't ask about their periods. Or I would get that, you know, it's it's just not realistic to write individualized training plans for an entire team. Like, you know, like coaches are busy. They just don't have time for that. Um, or I would get another one I get is like, I just am not sold like on the science of how the cycle affects performance, because even as strength and conditioning coaches, uh, the foundational concepts of how we train athletes is all based on research from men. And so challenging some of those really foundational concepts of strength and conditioning doesn't always go over well, because essentially I have to help these coaches unlearn all of these these truths that we held as not questionable. Um, and then I have to help them know why why it's worth unlearning and how to unlearn it. Now that my role, like I came to NC State and my whole role was this, it was menstrual cycle based athlete management. And so because people know that that's what I was brought here to do. Um, and you know, my administration really believes in me and my director believes in me enough to really he you know fought to get this position funded for me um that it's I feel like I get a lot less pushback we we need women in roles to start questioning and to start like looking into female issues and it's not that they're neglecting female issues it's just that they don't even know they exist and so that's what's so interesting to me is it's like of like of course men don't really consider how your period would affect um your performance because it's not something that they deal with on a monthly basis. You're talking about how you've gotten a lot of coaches on board. How has the reaction been from your female athletes? Yeah, I think I usually get one of two responses for probably 95% of my athletes. And the first response is like, yeah, like that checks out. That makes complete sense. Like almost no questions asked. Um, and then the second response I get is, this is so incredibly interesting. Can we talk more about it? And so, you know, both of those are great. Both of those, you know, allow for implementation of, of different applications in programming. It's interesting because it's just kind of a paradigm where people are like, wow, that's so incredible that that's what you're doing. I'm like, yeah, but also like it's 2020 and like here we are trying to take it mainstream and like people, you know, it's still hard to get it mainstream. Why isn't this ever discussed? Like I, you know, every year on our sports medicine, like, questionnaire they're like when was the last like date of your period so you put that but then there's no follow-up ever after um and I know like I've dealt with migraines personally and like I've never been asked is it tied to my menstrual cycle is it tied to the um birth control I'm on like that's never been a question that's that that I've been asked um so going off that I have a couple questions from athletes at UNC um that they want to have answered by you 
Yeah, I think really, so just really quickly, I think what you just explained of how you're like, why is this taking so long? Why is it 2020 and this is the first time? Sports were created for and by the male lens. They were created for males to, you know, express that tenacity and that aggressive behavior. And so that's not something that's um, favorably associated with women. You know, it goes back, there was an article by a journalist out here in Raleigh, and she talked about how sexism in sports science hiring is disproportionately affecting injury rates of female athletes because they have numerous types of injuries that we're not even asking about, right? Like I was never asked about breast injuries. And in volleyball, you'll dive on the wood floor and sometimes you dive wrong and your wind is knocked out of you for, you know, 30 seconds or so just from the way that you can hit your breast by diving on the floor. And those questions aren't asked. And so women aren't told that they can have careers in sports science. Um, and so we don't have women in those question asking roles. And because of that, it's taken this long to ask these questions about breast injuries, about cycle, about birth control, about you know all these different concepts that only affect women. I'm a big believer in obviously like when you see people like you doing something, you have the confidence to go and do that. So I think you're breaking a lot of those glass ceilings. So now I'm really excited to kind of get you these questions directly from athletes. Here's a question from Katie Mack. Um, she's one of my friends, she's a rower. So I had two questions for you. What is the science behind how the menstrual cycle affects an athlete's performance? And in what way do the major hormones affect performance throughout the menstrual cycle? It, it can kind of be split into two parts. So we have performance and that's like during competition and then we have training. And so when we look at training, different hormones affect different things. So estrogen, right? Estrogen is really anabolic for us, which is helpful because we don't have the same influx of testosterone that our male counterparts have. That's why when we go through puberty, we have much different you know, anthropometric outcomes compared to our male counterparts because we have the epigenetic effects of estrogen. So we have, you know, widening of our hips and our carrying angle and all those things. And men have testosterone. And so they just get like big and muscular and fast and strong. And we're like, oh, that would be like really cool if that could happen to us, right? And so estrogen and progesterone are the two um, female sex hormones that we talk about the most. Um, and they kind of they kind of have opposite effects. So estrogen is more prevalent in the beginning, the first half of the cycle, which is called the follicular phase. And that's from day one of your period, the first day of your period until the day before ovulation. And then ovulation is kind of your midway point. Um, and so then ovulation happens in the second half is called the luteal phase. And that's characterized by much higher progesterone and then a smaller bump of estrogen. So when we look at estrogen, it's much more anabolic. It helps us build muscle. Um, it increases gluc or excuse me, fat utilization for fuel. Um, and so you're fueled off much more free fatty acids. Um, it can help improve like your time to fatigue. It can help improve your um, performances in submaximal tests. Uh, it can help improve your power output, things like that. Um, and then when we look at progesterone, progesterone is much more catabolic. So when progesterone is present, we really can't build muscle at default. So we're, we're breaking down muscle just at default. So if we do a really taxing session when progesterone is present, then you're going to be taking more away from your muscles than you're going to be building. And that's kind of the biggest differentiation, especially with training, is that um, if if we were to train on, you know, a traditional three weeks up, one week down um, course, and you have, you know, a traditional 28-day cycle, let's say, which 
we now know is not the average length, but for the purposes of this explanation, we'll say it is. Um, that third week when you have the highest volume of your training your training block, that's going to be when progesterone is, is at its highest level. So you're going to be doing the most damage to your muscles in a time when you really, I mean, you're, you're pretty diminished just at default. And so understanding that, I think, you know, it's really articulated well in the seminal study of menstrual cycle triggered training, which is when um, they did in the follicular phase, the first half, they trained every other day. And then in the luteal phase, they only trained once a week. And the control group trained every third day. And so they did it over two cycles and it equated to the same number of training sessions per group. And the traditional group saw 13% increase in strength and hypertrophy. Um, and the follicular phase group who trained more commonly in the follicular phase and then only one time a week in the luteal phase, they saw almost 33% improvement in strength and hypertrophy. And so what that tells us is that if you're training a progressively overloaded resistance training program in the luteal phase when progesterone is present, you're you're doing more damage to your muscles. So you're actually taking away the gains that you just previously made in the follicular phase. So then when we go to performance, so we have these, you know, these differences in hormones that can change the outcomes. But then another layer on top of that is um, the different symptoms that we can feel throughout our cycle. So um, PMS, premenstrual syndrome, can happen, uh, you know, 10 to 7 days before, the week before your period essentially is an easy way to explain it. And that can result from uh, a big downregulation of estrogen and progesterone going into that signals the shedding of the lining, right? And so that can have some pretty gnarly effects on the hypothalamus. That can change your production of serotonin. That's why we see anxiety and depression as some of the most prevalent symptoms of PMS. Um, we can see sleep being compromised. So in that luteal phase with the progesterone, your, your temperature can be two degrees hotter. A lot of times in research, um, they'll use the basal body temperature to determine what phase people, women are in um, for the, the research itself. And so if you're running two degrees hotter, that means that you can't get into REM as well. You can't get into deep sleep as well. So you're not recovering as well, right? And so there are some, some strategies that we can use um, at different points. Also, you know, when you've got high estrogen and progesterone, you can't use carbs as well in that luteal phase. So if you do your pre-competition meal three hours before and, you're, and you carb load it, just like we're taught that we're supposed to, based on research from men, uh, then when you get to game time or competition time, your body has stored those carbs. So they're not actually usable carbs anymore. And so understanding that, that maybe you need to go higher fat in that pregame meal and then right before the competition and during the competition that's when you want to get those carbs because then they're usable they're in the system so you can you can use them a bit better and then we want to look at like protein so you know there's research now that says that there's no anabolic window and anabolic window is the time after your training session when you have to get the protein in well that's because men have an anabolic window of 18 to 24 hours after their training session that if they get protein in 18 to 24 hours after, then they have effectively, you know, maximized the gains. They're good to go. When we look at women, we have 30 minutes, 30 minutes to shut off that catabolic state. And so, you know, there's, there's just so much out there that, um, that doesn't apply to women, but because we don't have that differentiation, then, you know, we're left with the recommendations of men. And so our performances are never going to be as good, right? Because all these strategies of fueling and getting ready for the competition and things like that, they're all based on men. They're not based on us and what we need. 
Um, and so I think, you know, it's a little philosophical, but one of my big things is like, well, what's that performance gap between men and women when we start training women like women? We've been training men like men for for centuries now, right? And we see these incredible performances, but like as women, what what can we accomplish if we start training us based on our own physiology? Like how is that performance gap? What's that look like for us? Maybe it's a lot smaller than we think it is. It just, to me, that whole thing is just like mind blowing. Cause I'm like, like I can't wrap my head around it because I'm like, this is so crazy. Like the, the differences are so severe. Like what you're saying, 30 minutes versus 18 to 24 hours. You're just like, what? You're like... Must be nice, right? And these are just (laughs) such simple fixes, too, that if women knew and athletes knew, they would do it because they want to increase their performance. You know, we do all sorts of crazy things to try to increase our performance. Like, you're like, everything's a lie. Like, everything I've been told is a lie. You're just like, it doesn't doesn't make sense. Like, why? It's like a secret world out there, you know? It's like all this untapped potential. Yeah, no, for sure. So... Here's a question from a lacrosse athlete um, at UNC who has had a couple um, knee injuries. She asked, Can or does your menstrual cycle have an impact on the probability of tearing your ACL? So there was a lot of research. It was a super hot topic that came out like in the early 2000s. Um, And essentially what the research demonstrated was that estrogen can increase joint laxity. And so with that, when we look at the hormonal landscape of the period, that doesn't line up, right? I mean, the the period is, that's when apples to oranges, but that's when our physiology is closest to that of a man because we have the lowest amounts of estrogen, the lowest amounts of progesterone to signal that uterine lining shed because that's our body's way of saying we haven't fertilized this egg we don't need this lining anymore and so if you look at the research that shows that estrogen does in fact increase joint laxity then that doesn't line up with the period scheme of increasing your chances of of injury Um, what we do see is that there can be that the bump in estrogen right before ovulation Um, but with that there's also a bump in testosterone So that's the only bump in testosterone that we get throughout the entire cycle. And that's at the end of the follicular phase going into ovulation. So with that, you know, we've got this estrogen that can help our strength output, can help our our power output. um, And we've got testosterone that has similar effects, but we've got increased joint laxity. So what does that mean? For me, that means that's not when I'm going to put in new movements, right? But it is like we're going to push our maxes then. So if we've got the most anabolic effect during that time, we're going to set some training maxes. They need to be well warmed up. They need to be properly fueled. They need to be comfortable in the movement patterns and have sound movement patterns going in. Um, But at the end of the day, we don't get to determine when we compete, right? Like you don't get to walk into a, a race and be like, you know what coach, as it turns out, like my estrogen is through the roof right now. So my ligaments are just like a little questionable. Like that's not how competition works. And, and that's kind of what I tell my athletes is like, yes, estrogen does increase joint laxity. That's a fact. With that being said, we don't get to determine when we have estrogen and when we don't. You can look at it that way. You can look at it the way of like, well, estrogen increases joint laxity, so my chance of tearing my ACL is increased. Or you can look at it in the terms of, I learned this technique and I perfected this technique when my body was in its suboptimal state. So now I get to my optimal state and I'm ready Mm -hmm. to roll. The next one is a question from a track and field athlete. Can you talk about the stigma surrounding runners and losing their periods? 
because in my experience, it's been seen as a positive thing since supposedly having your period makes you a less successful runner. Uh, so we used to have the female athlete triad, right? And now we know that that's not applicable. So it's far more than three things that affect the you know hormonal function of an athlete and, and the performance of an athlete. And so we don't really, we've moved away from the female athlete triad model. Um, and now we have what's called red S and it's relative energy deficiency in sport. And I think it, it can be institutionally dependent too. So like I've, you know, spoken with some strength coaches of cross country programs where this isn't the case. So this is not standard across the board, but some sports do have a higher tendency to wear amenorrhea as a badge of honor right? Like I haven't had my period in two years. And like, that's the standard because they've associated having a period with a higher body fat percentage. And that's not the case at all. But red S relative energy deficiency in sport. It's when you don't have the nutritional amount to sustain your level of training. And so menstrual dysfunction happens. And when we see menstrual dysfunction happen, we see luteinizing hormone, which is the hormone that signals the release of the egg. So it signals ovulation. Um, When that doesn't fluctuate because we don't have enough uh, calories to do so and we don't see that elevation of progesterone and we don't see progesterone that's when we start to see those you know bone stress injuries so a lot of those sports that have amenorrhea much more prevalent will have so many more stress fractures right it's it's really significant and so I think educating our athletes about how much better their performance potential is if they have a healthy cycle is really important. So getting that protein, and especially if you're not hungry after a workout, um, that's a big sign that that there could be some dysfunction happening. And so making sure that even if you're not hungry, getting that protein in as soon as you're done training is, is wicked important. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think that's such an important topic. It's one that we've somewhat addressed um, actually in our first podcast. I have another big question. So the question is, what is the best birth control for a female athlete or methods? Because um, there's the pill, there's the IUD. What are the effects of each? What would you recommend? Um, what are things female athletes aren't told about birth control? Yeah, so this is, I would say, probably one of the biggest myths that I bust on a daily or weekly basis. And that is that the pill does not regulate your cycle the pill suppresses your cycle. So if you have a period during your week of inactive pills when you're on oral contraceptives, that's not a period. Because when we look at the hormonal landscape of that week, it's not the same as the true, as a a menses of the menstrual cycle. Um, And what that pill does is it suppresses the luteinizing hormone, which suppresses the fluctuation of the bigger hormones. And so it doesn't allow your body's natural hormones to fluctuate, um, which takes away ovulation. So the whole point of it is to not release an egg uh, so that you can't fertilize an egg, right? Um, And so I think in terms of what's the best birth control for a female athlete, I think you have to uh, adjust and identify why you're on birth control in the first place. So if you went on it in high school because you had really bad cramps, uh, there are numerous, you know, nutrition and behavioral interventions that you can use to mitigate cramps. If you went on it to regulate your period, we know that, you know, with the epigenetic development of puberty for young women, 
your cycle isn't going to be regular, right? This is the first time that you've been exposed to these hormones in the quantities that you have. So it's going to take a little while to regulate your period when you are 13, 14 and going through that. And that's natural. That's okay. The option is not to put you on the pill because it doesn't regulate your cycle. It doesn't give you a cycle. It gives you fake synthetic hormones that just puts a fake cycle on top of it and suppresses your own natural production. So that's important to consider as well. If you're going on birth control simply because you don't want to get pregnant, that's more than good enough. It's more than good enough. Um, I think a lot of times this cultural implication of birth control is really tough because we are, as women, expected to take care of it, right? We're expected to handle that. We're expected to know what's best for our bodies at 18, 19 years old or whatever age you go on birth control because you don't want to get pregnant. Um, But we're shamed into saying that. Like we are shamed into saying, I went on birth control because I don't want to get pregnant. Okay, so the IUD, right? you uh it's it's localized it's progestin only so it's it's a synthetic progestin but it's not a combination of estrogen and progesterone and it's localized to the uterus where it's implanted so your body's still going to go through its natural fluctuation but because that localized release of progestin you're not going to build up a lining inside of your uterus so you probably won't have a period also it can extend your cycle so you might go from like you know a 32 to like a 38 40 day cycle sometimes um but it's it's localized, right? We also have like a progestin mini pill. So that's also not a combination oral contraceptive and that can be a better option as well. There's the copper IUD that's not hormonal um, and is much more long-term. I think it's implanted for up to 10 years and they used to only give IUDs to uh, women that had already had children, but now we know it's safe for a number of women um, and that it can, it can really help fight against cervical infections as well. Um, but when we look at the combination oral contraceptive, so what we typically determine is the pill, uh, we kind of have two different types. So we have a monophasic and a triphasic. And so what that means is that the monophasic is the same amount of dosage for the 21 days and then the seven days of sugar pills. And the triphasic is maintained estrogen and then progesterone that elevates over three different weeks. And so, you know, understanding what kind of pill you're on is really helpful, uh, but also understanding that that when you're on the pill, which is the most commonly prescribed type of birth control, it's experimental in its own right. So every prescription of the pill is experimental. Um, and then with that, there's research that shows that you can increase hypertrophy Um, not as much as if you were a naturally cycling woman, not on the pill, but you can increase hypertrophy, but it's not usable strength. So that ethanol estradiol, which is the synthetic estrogen, um, that can, you know, enlarge muscles, but your force output doesn't linearly change. So you're gaining muscle, but you're not gaining usable strength. I've also, I've looked into some research on how, you know, there's so many outcomes of when you go on the pill. And some people will say, oh, I gained a bunch of weight or I lost weight or it helped my skin or it made my skin worse. And a lot of those differences happen on trained populations versus untrained populations. So I was looking at a research study the other day that put athletes on a monophase or put two groups on a monophasic OC and they saw that trained group, so similar to female athletes, they gained weight versus untrained populations. So general pop, they lost weight. And so that's really important to know, right? So if you're, you know, if you're a cross country athlete, that matters. If you are an athlete, you know, like a female wrestler and you have weight categories, that matters. That's a big deal for a lot of athletes, especially I felt very upset. Like 
that that information was never presented to me. I think it is crazy too, going back to what you were saying about the three weeks on, one week off. That's what our team uses. That's what most teams use. And I think it's so interesting knowing like, wow, like literally it could be doing nothing if you're in like a different phase than one of your other teammates. I could be somewhere in my cycle and my friend could be, you know, somewhere else. And it's like, wow, that's such an important thing to realize. Like, how how are we doing a one size fits all if, if there's so many different categories of people dealing with different things in their cycle and like and I think something else we talked about too was like injury like we already shift training plans and things for people with injuries so couldn't we do it to fit this I um wanted to do a little myth busting section um yeah I love this part of it I love myth busting people and watching their faces um so I think the first one the most common one that comes in mind is probably cycle synchrony so um you know people think that if they live in close close quarters with other women that the pheromones are gonna create them to sync up in their cycle and uh that's not true so there was one research study that came out in 1971 I believe and it um they showed that that women in you know I think it was maybe 300 women in a university that they synced up but they didn't control for the chance part of that so like there was no control for like the the variability essentially of it um and so you know it it was thought to be like this seminal study on it but um now we know that like not only did it not prove synchrony but there's been numerous research that's come out since that has disproved that so the clue app and oxford university had a research and not only did it shows that they that women's periods don't sync over time um but those who spend a lot of time together are actually more likely to not have uh that, that it's likely to separate. So it's, it's more likely to become less synchronized. Um, and so that's one too, where, you know, so I get so many coaches that are like, well, you know, the team, if they're all together, then they're going to sync up and it might make programming easier. I'm like, don't bet on it. You know, um, what's another one? Oh, oh, this is one of my favorite ones. So, uh, whenever a woman has like an emotional reaction and a man will say, are you on your period? And, you know, like, it's one of those things that's, like, become this big joke in society of, like, never ask a woman if she's on her period. Um, in reality, the, the, the most common times of, like, anxiety or depression or mood instability or brain fog that might elicit emotional reaction would actually happen in the luteal phase. So it would be the phase before the period. So this social stigma of, like, the period and how people are in worse moods and how um, they're in a weakened state, like, that's... That's completely false. Uh, the previous world record holder, Paula Radcliffe in the marathon, she set her world record marathon while she was on her period and had cramps. So, you know, this this myth that, that when a woman is on her period, she's in a weakened state and, and diminished performance, that's completely false. That's when we're primed for some of our best performances. Uh, that's a huge myth that I fight with athletes all the time, like, oh, I'm on my period. I'm just like not feeling it. I'm like, no, this is it. Let's light it up. Let's set a max. Let's get after it, you know? Uh, and so, so that's a big one too. And then I think probably the last one that we haven't talked about, and this one like really grinds my gears. I try to keep it together when people say it. Um, but I'll kind of, I go through, you know, this explanation of why I only want to work with female athletes. I have no desire to work with college football teams or men's basketball teams. And that's where most strength coaches want to go. And I'm like, yep, I got, I got no desire. And people are like, oh, well, what's wrong? Like, you don't like working with men or what? And I'm like, no, uh, they just don't have periods. Right. And then I get the feedback of, 
I'm pretty sure men have periods too. And what that does is that takes their experience with a male athlete when a male athlete had some emotional reaction that the coach felt didn't fit the stimulus, right? So, you know, you go in and you say, here's our training schedule. And they're like, I can't do it, blah, 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 whatever. They have some emotional outburst that's some, you know, a negative connotation. And they chalk that up to the period. And so they put a complete negative lens on the entire menstrual cycle. And that's the only connection that they have. I mean, that's all that they, they're going off of. And that's why they say that, you know, I, I think men have periods too. And, and the period isn't negative. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's, a, it's a great thing, right? The menstrual cycle is a roadmap to success. It's telling us when we can go hard and when we can develop different things. And the period itself is a sign of health. You know, society tell my mom when she was, you know, in puberty or whatever, uh, she had to lay in a dark room when she was on her period because they were like, my grandma and great grandma were like, it's your, your uterus is, it's not okay. It's very unstable right now. Like you're not, you're weak. You can't do anything. Um, you know, women weren't allowed to triple jump or pole vault in the Olympics until the nineties because they thought that our uteruses were just going to fall out. Like the, the jolting of the triple jump, we were just, we were going to lose it right there on the track. Um, and so really reframing all those, you know, those myths and those cultural thoughts and narratives um, and, and explaining why they're not applicable and why they're not accurate is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> yeah. I, again, like what you're doing is such a big deal. Like you are opening that door for other women to follow in your footsteps. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of Benched. This is your host, Jules Makia, and a thank you to our special guest, Sam Moore.